Nicholas of Flua, the patron saint of Switzerland, left his wife and 10 children to become a hermit. Legends cling to the lives of the saints, but apparently the story of the 16th century Nicholas is true. When I read today's gospel, I thought of Nicholas of Flua. In today's lessons, there is a lot of wrestling about how we should live. There's Paul telling the Galatians to stop quarreling and behaving so badly. There's Jesus telling would-be followers that foxes have holes while he has no place to lay his head. When he says, follow me, to someone who responds, Lord, first let me bury my father, Jesus replies, let the dead bury the dead. And to another who wants first to say goodbye, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Is there a common theme to the epistle and gospel? Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. Sometimes, like today, there is an interesting conversation between them. To take Paul first, control over the situations in which we find ourselves, is something we humans tend to want very badly. It scares me when our dog wrenches the leash out of my hand because he sees a squirrel on the far side of the street. I appreciate that he has his own desires, his own priorities, his own sense of agency. I would not want a dog robot, but my dog needs me to protect him from cars. Yet in the situations that Paul is describing, the desire for control is, I think, being misused. Sorcery is the obvious case. Perhaps with the right formula, we can compel the divine to do our will. But jealousy, anger, and quarrels, maybe even fornication, drunkenness, and carousing, aren't these often an attempt to construct a world that suits oneself, regardless of how others are affected? And what is that but a desire for overreaching control? Building a life on one's own desires is just what the character Thrasymachus was advocating in Plato's most famous dialogue, The Republic, written in the fourth century BCE. Thrasymachus's view of life goes like this. Grab everything, or at least everything you can get away with, for yourself. Thrasymachus happened to care most about unlimited political power, to be a tyrant, was his ideal life. Of course, I doubt if many of us would agree with Thrasymachus. Certainly Plato didn't, which is not to say we never unfairly favor what we take to be in our own interest. But is putting one's own interest first, as Thrasymachus proposes, even smart? To put the point another way, what are we to make of what is sometimes called rational self-interest. That depends on who we really are and how the world really is. What our lessons suggest is that what is called rational self-interest is not rational, nor is it self-interest. What is called rational self-interest is not rational because rationality or reason has to be connected 
to how reality really is. By this I mean not what the cynics say is the way the world really works, but what Plato would call the good and what we most often call God. For Plato, what is good is not competitive. It is not my good obtained at your expense, my good versus yours. And so-called rational self-interest is also not self-interest because, as is the case with Thrasymachus, it misidentifies the self. Thrasymachus thinks of each of us as autonomous individuals who must strive to dominate lest we be dominated. But what if real self-interest is not something that exists in isolation, one of us from another? What if who we really are is to be found in our relationship to every other being in relation to God? In New Seeds of Contemplation, Thomas Merton put it this way, my true personality will be fulfilled in the mystical Christ in this one way above all, that through me Christ and his spirit will be able to love you and all others in a way that would be possible in no one else. Because God's love is in me, it can come to you from a different and special direction that would be closed if he did not live in me. And because his love is in you, it can come to me from a quarter from which it would not otherwise come. For Merton, each of us is unique and irreplaceable, but that is not the same as self-sufficient and destructive of one another. Maybe I spent far too many years teaching Greek philosophy, and Merton, for that matter, but even if I don't live up to it, this very relational view of reality, which in our tradition is grounded in a Trinitarian God, makes a lot of sense to me. And once one begins to think of every being as fulfilled by being connected through love to every other being, Paul's advice to the Galatians makes sense too. When he tells them that having been freed by Christ, they must not submit again to a yoke of slavery, and then that through love they are to become slaves, not of, but to one another. He has replaced the oppressive hierarchy of slavery with a freely given bond of mutual service and love. And this makes his understanding of freedom very different from what might be the most common way we think about it, namely as being able to do whatever one pleases regardless of its effect on others. For Paul, like Plato, freedom is not just attaining one's ends, whatever they are, just as reason is not mere cleverness. Both are directed toward a reality where all are connected by love. That is what is real and what really is of value. Yet wanting to bury one's father or say goodbye to one's family and friends is hardly the kind of behavior Paul was criticizing. It is just the kind of concern for others that Thrasymachus so egregiously lacks and which makes Nicholas's choice so problematic, to say the least. So what is Jesus up to? 
The short answer is probably hyperbole. Jesus often overstates things for effect. Nevertheless, I find something deeply reassuring in Jesus's depiction of the kingdom of God. It is not that I can imagine myself having the courage and trust that Jesus and his disciples had. In fact, maybe even the idea of leaving the dead to bury the dead makes me uneasy. It all depends on how that metaphor is to be unpacked. But the state in which we are like foxes without holes is something we all know. Even if it is something we would not choose, it happens anyway. That sense of being in control, for many human beings is something that never did describe their experience. And for everyone, that safety can get completely upended by events. Illness, the loss of someone we love by death or just loss of the relationship, violence, political chaos, a changing climate, one way or another, we are vulnerable, just as Jesus realized he was once he sensed the strength of the opposition to his ministry. In Iris Murdoch's novel, Henry and Cato, Cato feels called to be a Catholic priest serving God and his neighbors in London's impoverished East End. He finds himself doubting the theology he is committed to and his vocation to the priesthood. He has doubts about himself. But what really leaves him exposed like a fox without a hole comes when he is kidnapped for ransom. I don't want to spoil Murdoch's amazing plot. Let's just say that in captivity, in circumstances that are just impenetrable in their complexity, Cato does something that totally shatters his self-conception. What happens when, like Cato, we are thrown out of our idea of ourselves and our purpose and our lives? When we are kidnapped, as it were, by illness or loss or any of a thousand other unforeseen events in life that leave us without control? For me, and I want to stress that this is for me, I do not find calling what happens God's plan or saying that there is a reason for everything or that everything happens for the best at all helpful. When I was in seminary, one day our theology professor asked me what I would say was the reason for Jesus' death. I replied simply that Jesus died because people got mad at him. My theology is that the world is full of conflicting human endeavors and events not of anyone's choosing, and stuff just happens. Stuff happened to Nicholas's wife and 10 children. Stuff happened to Cato. Stuff happens to us. So why would Jesus's followers continue to follow him? Why would Jesus himself do what he was doing? At the end of the novel, after all his plans have crumbled, Cato, to his surprise, seems to find a way to go on. Whether it is better than what he intended is something it is not necessary to ask. 
It is a way that is in accord with what reality is now, and it is good. That depth of goodness which is sometimes within and sometimes far beyond our control is what I mean by God. Even in being like a fox without a hole, sometimes we are found by the peace and love which is the kingdom of God. <laughs>